So you all know that Jody is going to be the new pastor of the church in Bloomington. And uh, you all know this, but it's such a joy to me. And, you know, it's hard to, to get old and to move off. But on the other hand, if you have to do it, this is the best situation to do it. And so remember, what, you want me to leave now? No. I don't think that's working. And I really want everybody to hear this, whatever you're going to say. When you spend many years, 10, 12, having Jody lead you in worship every Sunday, and then you listen to their music all week when you write, he owns your heart. And it's been one of the greatest frustrations of my last 15 years that our musicians' music has not gotten purchase outside of our ghetto. I find it incomprehensible, but I have come to the conclusion that there just simply is no way of uh, believing in repentance in the church today. And you might think, well, that's a weird way of putting it, but that's actually what I think. I think that the church has become antithetical to repentance. And so as I begin this last talk, would you please realize, as I said to the men, that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. You need to repent. Your wife needs to repent. Your children need to repent. Don't protect yourselves from it. Find a church, find music, find reading that will lead you to repentance. And when you go to a conference, don't go to a conference that just confirms your stupidity. Why give them money to do that? You've got Facebook for that. (laughs) Now, this is the final talk. Anyhow, I love Jody, and I hope all of you will give him your heart as you've given it to me. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Have you ever built a new house? Dan, this is where you come in. Okay. Mary Lee and I did it about 12 years ago. People warned us it would test our marriage. Mary Lee wrote, couples building a house fight. I would say couples building a house divorce. Decisions were relentless. Should we put in a heavy foundation that can support a fireplace of solid stone or settle for a lighter foundation that only supports a fireplace of fake stone veneer? Uh, Mike will never stop pointing out to us the fact that we put in a heavy foundation and then use veneer. How many bathrooms, a deck or a patio, which windows, solid wood or fiberglass doors, concrete or blacktop driveway, finished or unfinished basement, heat pumps, geothermal, stone or plastic countertops, paint colors, on and on it went. And then just when we thought we were about done, Dan George called and told Mary Lee that it was time to pick out our light fixtures. Mary Lee was thinking, okay, we have about 10 rooms, so I guess we need to pick out about 10 light fixtures. Wrong. He sent Mary Lee a list of 35 places that needed light fixtures. Well, since she was so overwhelmed by it, she did not do it. And so Dan reminded her again, and then finally Dan asked her if she wanted him to pick the light fixtures. Well, yes, actually, that would be fine, she said. 
Building a marriage is like building a house. When you marry, or even before you marry, the decisions are relentless. And every decision seems critical. Should the groom-to-be ask his intended father for permission? Is he a Christian? Would he understand your request, or would he think his daughter was marrying a freak show? And what if he says no? Which pastor should officiate, your own or the pastor of the bride's home church? After the honeymoon, where should you live? Should you use contraception so your wife can finish college? Or instead, should you start your family right away? It's gotten progressively more difficult for me to turn pages. Making these decisions is hard work, and even after we've made them, we often ask ourselves whether or not we made the right decision. Sometimes we're left wondering, what was all that work? Was it for nothing? Now, we all know what it is to labor in vain. I told you last night about my brother and I spending 10 hours laboring in vain on his car. Marriage, though, is an altogether different thing. Cars come and go. You can mess a car up and you're only out a few thousand dollars. Now, you know what I'm going to say next, right? But when you mess up a marriage, you're out of a life. Burn that into your brain. Imagine having worked for decades to build your marriage and raise your children only to throw in the towel after 25 or 30 or 40 years, and then returning to singleness and aloneness. Can we understand what would cause a couple in their 40s or 50s to divorce after their children leave home? If we're honest, yes, we can easily understand this. Marriage is hard work. Now, of course, it's hard work for you and your wife or husband. But have you ever thought about the fact that marriage is hard work for your children? Your marriage, not theirs, is hard work for your children. They grow up seeing and hearing and feeling the conflict. And it's terribly difficult for them because they love their parents. Sometimes they have to speak to us about it. Sometimes they have to rebuke us for our sin against each other. And by extension, our sin against them and their brothers and sisters. Children miss nothing. After the devastating death of their eldest son, the third of their children who died during childhood, my mother and father moved across the country and began a new life in a new house and community where they were friendless. Dad had to travel a lot, and Mud was left at home raising three younger children, and she often had to do it alone. My older sister had just started at the University of Illinois, Urbana, was only home for semester breaks, and yet on those breaks, she saw the conflict between Dad and Mud, and she talked to them about it. She told them they had to stop fighting and get their marriage right, if not for themselves, at least for their younger children. I hadn't known Deborah did this hard work until she told me recently. But I remember how hard it was living with Dad and Mud in their terrible grief. Things got better, and I'm so grateful for the help Deborah gave Dad and Mud. 
In their late 70s, mom and dad Taylor, Mary Lee's parents, began getting snippy with each other. It was quite noticeable, and after one visit, Mary Lee and I commented on it to each other, and we decided that we would pray for them. A year or so later, we visited, and the snippiness was gone. Now, in the, in the Taylor clan, the important thing is to never say anything. That's, that's, the, that's the, the gold standard. You, don't say, you certainly don't say anything about anything that's negative. And you certainly don't ever mention sin. No. You know, that's something that's in the Bible. That's something to be published. But it doesn't happen in your life. Right, I'll stop. Yet, when we came back, I mentioned to Dad that Mary Lee and I had noticed their impatience with each other. You have no idea what faith this took for me to raise the subject. I noticed that their impatience with each other, that we had been praying for, and that we were happy to see how much better they were with each other. And then I actually asked my father-in-law whether he would agree with that assessment. And he said, yes. And that was like a hundred-year flood in my relationship with my father-in-law. It was like he was admitting that, yes, they'd been sinning against each other and had gotten better. Once when mom and dad Taylor were visiting us in Bloomington, Sarah and Andrew Dion stopped by on their way home from Brown County. They'd just gotten engaged, and she wanted to show us their ring. We didn't know they were coming. They walked in the front door. Mom and dad were there. And after all the hugs and introductions and ooing and aahing, Mary Lee's mother, very quietly and very matter-of-factly, stated, it's only hard for the first 20 years. (laughs) And she was emoting. She was being sympathetic. She was congratulating them. She thought she'd said something helpful. (laughs) She wasn't making a joke. We assured them later that it gets better after the first 10 years. (laughs) Why bring up the difficulties my own and my wife's parents had in their marriages? Well, both couples were deeply respected in their church. Both of our fathers were known for their wisdom and leadership. Both were elders of their church. Both couples were thought by most of their friends and acquaintances to have healthy biblical marriages. And in fact, they did. All right, you with me? They did have healthy biblical marriages. Both were healthy biblical marriages, and both marriages were hard. They were filled with disappointments and sin and losses that were hard to sustain across the winters of their unions. Marriage is hard. Bearing and raising children is hard. Providing for the household is hard. Cooking and cleaning and writing books is hard. I remember my dad's labor on one of his books defining our family prayer times for over a year. 
he had gotten started on the job and then he lost interest, but he was under contract as Zonovan to produce the book. And so we prayed and prayed and prayed. It had to be finished, so night after night we asked God to help Dad finish the book, and eventually he did. Every marriage is to a difficult man or woman. The difference between faithful and faithless Christian marriages is not whether or not the marriage is hard, but whether the husband and wife are truthful about it being hard. And this is a riff I could go on now for like, you know, stairway to heaven length, in a God of DeVito length. <laughs> I get so tired of Christians who think that they have to lie to everybody. You're not fooling anybody. You're just not. You are a piece of work. It's obvious to your pastor. <laughs> you know, you're not fooling them. Your wife's a piece of work and you can't hide it. And actually, if your pastor is Godly, he loves you more because of it. No pastor loves people who lie to them. It might serve his interests in that he can go home for dinner right after he gets done preaching, but he won't love you. We have a chapter on conflict and how to fight well, and in that chapter, we begin with me really getting aggressive and hostile against the couples in our church who have claimed that they have a good marriage and that they don't fight or argue. And it infuriates me. It infuriates me because they're oppressive to all the other couples in the church who think, what's wrong with us? Right? But it also infuriates me because it's just plain a lie. Do you know that there are many evangelicals who came to faith in groups like Campus Crusade and Navigators. And do you know what Navigate or do you know what Campus Crusade actually is? Campus Crusade is actually an organization that teaches its staff workers to lie. Do you know most missions teach the missionaries to lie? How many of you have read missionary letters? It's just like, please, would you tell me it's not going well? <laughs> Can we really have 30 years of it going wonderfully and there's still two people in your church? <laughs> I mean, at some point, doesn't truth have to be let out of the bag? You know, at some point, don't we have to acknowledge? And so we had a couple in our church, he was an elder, and she and my wife were best friends, and they felt called to the missions. And so um, they were raising support to go out in the mission field. And so, and this happens all the time. And so Mary Lee hears from the woman the straight dope. And then she comes and gives me the straight dope about them. And then I talk to the man. And it's blah, 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 blah. And so week after week, she gives me the straight dope. And then I talk to the man and it's blah, 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 blah. And it's always blah, blah, you know. <laughs> Things are going wonderfully. So finally, I said to this man one day, I said, you know, 
Campus Crusade teaches you to lie. Would you please be truthful? Every time I talk to you, you say things are wonderful, and then Mary Lee talks to your wife and things aren't wonderful. And here's, here's as good as it gets with Campus Crusade. Navigators does it too. Missions does it. At that point, he's like, you know, you see him wilting. He's been caught, right? And he looks at me and he says, well, to be honest with you, things have been hard. But things are much better now. <laughs> and honestly, that was the end of him with me. That was the end. How can I help a liar? I mean, honestly, how can I help a liar? If somebody thinks that to be a godly Christian is to lie and misrepresent your sin and your husband's sin and the sin of your children, there's no Christian fellowship. Why do you need Jesus when everything's wonderful? Now, I know I've offended some of you by singling out Campus Crusade, but have you ever heard a negative report from a staff worker of Campus Crusade? Come on, anybody? Ever? Have you ever heard that the fundraising isn't going well? You say yes, but it would be the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. So listen, missions, same thing. We had mission, we've had missionaries we've been reading now for decades. And one of them, when his kids were little, he always used to write, write about his kids. And then all of a sudden, his kids grew up, and we never heard another word about his children. And I thought, isn't this interesting? So I wrote him. I said, hey, John, could you share with me what, what's going on with, his, with your children? And John said, no, we have a policy. We don't talk about our children. Oh. Oh. And this is the victorious Christian life. And please, you're never going to get better if you don't allow the doctor to tell you to take off your clothes and look at you. You know, can you imagine a doctor who lied to you every time you went in? Yeah, I know that you look like you have a 10-pound tumor sticking out of your stomach. But trust me, it's, it's all okay. I mean, you wouldn't go to a doctor like that. And yet, why? I see your 10-pound tumor. It's obvious to me that's a 10-pound tumor. You know? And you say, oh, no, 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 no. That's, no, no, no. That's, no, no. Just no. Mary Lee has had me ask women if they're pregnant a number of times when they're not. Okay, And so about 15 years ago, she said to me, would you please never, ever ask a woman if she's pregnant again? And I'm like, okay. Okay. So we go over to Africa. And we're at dinner with a missionary couple, and there's a national uh, pastor and his wife sitting there. And she's pregnant. I mean, she's obviously like in her eight months. It's as obvious as the nose on the end. But Mary Lee had said to me, don't you ever ask her. So I was good. I didn't ask. Middle of the meal, Mary Lee turns to her and says, when's your due date? And she says, 
I'm not pregnant. I had waited 20 years for that moment. She had about a 15-pound tumor. And she laughed and she said, don't worry, everybody thinks I'm pregnant. Only in Africa would there be such humility. So that's my rant. That's my riff. Please do not think that you need to present in a way that you think will be presentable. Don't do it. It's a lie. And if you need help, that's what Jesus is for. And that's what his church is for. That's what pastors are for. It's for what older women are for. Use this. Don't lie. Now, have I done enough on that? Okay. All right. I'll move on. We had an interesting revelation recently. We were talking about which couples early in our married life had an impact on us. Two of them had to do with couples fighting. When we were in seminary, an older professor had us over for dinner. Actually, he had us over for dinner with uh, Hudson, uh, Hudson Armiting. Uh, Hudson, Hudson was the president of Wheaton. Any of you know that? And he had a son named Hudson who was a, a, a newspaper reporter. We all went to the same church, OPC Church in South Hamilton. And so they and their family were at this house, and Mary Lee and, and me and our family were at the house. And as they prepared for the meal, this older couple who were in their 70s probably at the time, right? She goes out into the living room and she lights the fire in the fireplace. And all of a sudden there's smoke billowing out of the fireplace. And he'd been in the kitchen and he is, now I could say angry, but there's another word I would prefer. Really angry. <laughs> you know? He comes out and he reads her the riot act. He runs her up one side and down the other, you know? And this guy is a godly man, and his wife was godly. And it was such a relief. It was like, oh yeah, I recognize that, <laughs> you know? And apparently, you still do it in your 70s. In other words, here is a couple willing to have people in their home and fail in front of them. I mean, isn't that lovable? You know, can you imagine what it was like to be one of the 12 disciples? Can you imagine how mortified you were when you're in the upper room and he's about to die and you're fighting over which one of you is the greatest? Oh, that's most excellent. That's Campus Crusade material, you know? <laughs> oh, my. So then... They invited us to go to a banquet for the Christian school in the Boston area. And so we got in the back of the car with them and we drove to the banquet. It was about 45 minute drive. The entire time, she was in his face. I mean, I don't even want to dignify it by calling it backseat driving. She was just, no, don't, not that. And you know, it was embarrassing, but it was again, sort of encouraging. And then there was a couple named Elmer and Mitzi, and we were in a prayer group with them. They were in their 70s, and they were perfectly proper. Perfectly proper, all right? Mary Lee tells the story of one evening, we must have divided up into men and women for our prayer time. 
And Mary Lee says that Mitzi, in her recollection, prayed, Lord, you know you will have to deal with Elmer about this thing. He won't listen to me. You know, and Mary Lee said it was such an encouragement to her. She says, I was somewhat a flabbergasted, this older Christian couple still having problems in their marriage, instead of being discouraged by that realization, I was weirdly encouraged. Well, you want to tell the next one about the deck or you want me to tell it? Okay. So this is my wife, my, my great wife. So several years ago, many, many years ago, but um, we had a new deck put on our house and it was done, but then it needed to be finished. It needed the finishing, what do you call it? Um, shellac, paint, finish, anyway. So Tim had been out of town, but before he left town, we were discussing uh, what color we wanted to have it finished, and he wanted it dark, and I wanted it light. I wanted to be able to see the grain of the, you know, wood through a light finish and not a dark finish. Well, anyway, he left town, and I was left with the uh, ordering of this finish, and I ordered light. Yes, I did. So uh, somebody came and, you know, applied it, and then our uh, small group came over on Sunday. Tim was coming back into town awkwardly, right about the same time small group was going to meet. Anyway, but everybody knew that he was seeing the deck for the first time since it was finished. And so it was this kind of this anticipation. It was, it was exciting. It was beautiful. We were, you know, they were excited for us. And uh, he comes in, you know, looks out the kitchen window, you know, instantly sees that I did not follow his direction and, uh, you know, shepherded me down to the basement where he let me know that he was not pleased that I had not followed his direction. While the group upstairs, our small group was like, oh, where'd they go? This is very awkward. There was just this tension in the air. So, you know, we're fighting downstairs. Our small group's upstairs waiting for us to reappear, you know. So, of course, we finally have to. But it's just mortifying. So embarrassing. And then later on, one of the younger women in the small group said to me, that was so encouraging to know that you guys still fight. (laughs) Keep it. Yeah, Yeah, just keep it. One way we strengthen ourselves for this hard work of marriage is through taking vows. Vows bind us to do something that's typically very right and very hard. The thing we all vowed when we married was to love and to cherish until death separates us. How easy has that been for you? How easy has it been for your wife? I was on the phone recently with our eldest son, Joseph, and I told him I had just read 1 Corinthians 13 that morning and concluded I had no love in me. None. Have you read it and thought about yourself critically? Let me help. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 
Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But you know, my love fails. My love fails with the pastors and other people I work with. My love fails with the elders. My love fails with the flock we shepherd. My love fails with my children and with my grandchildren. My love fails with my mechanics. Certainly fails with my neighbors. And yes, it does fail with drivers at roundabouts. <laughs> but worst of all, my love fails with the one whom I promise before God in the presence of many witnesses to love and to cherish until death. Now, I want to get very personal here. One of my many sins is anger. Mary Lee has had to live with this sin of mine, watching it, and then having me confess it as sin and ask for her forgiveness. And she has granted me forgiveness liberally. Now, after a few years of marriage, I despaired of my refusal to put this sin away. I'd sin, then I'd ask forgiveness, then I'd sin, then I'd ask forgiveness, and I'd sin again. There's probably, I hope there's not a marriage here where this is not true in your marriage, that there's a particular sin that is confessed again and again. Now, I'm so very sorry, but I know I will soon, excuse me, Mary Lee was always quick to forgive me, but it didn't rest easy on my conscience that the sin had such a firm grip on me. One day after asking her to please forgive me for my anger, I then said, lover, I know I have asked you to forgive me for my anger many, many times now. I'm so very sorry, but I know I will soon ask you to forgive me for this sin again. And it does seem that I'm never repentant, and therefore my requests for you to forgive me are insincere. If you think that, I don't blame you. But lover, what I can say by faith is that God will finish the work he has begun in me. And that includes putting away my sinful anger. So let's pray about it. By the way, it's typical in a marriage for one of you to say that to the other, but not to have any reciprocity. You hear what I'm saying? Do not allow that in your marriage. Every marriage has two sinners, and if one of them is always asking for forgiveness and the other one is always feeling superior, that's not a marriage of equals. And my guess, it's the woman that's always superior. So if your wife never, ever admits she's wrong or asks for forgiveness, 
men, here's an opportunity to lead. And not by you confessing, but by you asking her why she never confesses and asks for forgiveness. Was that helpful? Huh? Was that helpful? (laughs) Josh is there laughing at me. Okay. All right. You think I'm funny. I won't be around much longer. (laughs) That's a joke. All right. Maybe at this point you're wondering whether a conference on marriage by a man who confesses his failure to love and cherish his wife could ever be helpful. Well, I respond by asking if there has ever been any other sort of conference. You know, I mean, has anyone ever led a conference on marriage that is not like me? No! Now, I don't mean that they're all like me or that they all like me. (laughs) But we're all the same. We're all sinners. For every husband, marriage is coming face to face with his sins and failing to love and be thankful for the wife God has given him. And the only hope for these sins is that God will persevere us. And true enough, I still sin in anger, but slowly and steadily through the years, this sin has loosened its grip on me. And things have gotten better in our marriage, day by day, month by month, year by year, and decade by decade. In other words, we have pled with God to build our house, and he has been faithful to sanctify me and to sanctify Mary Lee. You want me to tell you a little secret? I told some men this, but... You know what I started doing with Mary Lee in the last few years? You want a little picture into my marriage. I sometimes, just not maybe more than three or four times, I'll look at her in the middle of a fight where I'm not obviously wrong. That, that's as high as it gets with me. <laughs> I'm not obviously wrong, you know. And I, I sometimes will say to her, and this takes great faith, and it only comes when you're 67 and 68 years old, right? I'll look at her and I say, hey, lover, am I the head of the home? <laughs> now, I wonder how many men here have ever asked that question. It's like, that's out there, isn't it? You know, to take it from a hypothetical construct to an actual question. You know, lover, tell me. Just give me a straight answer. I want to know. Am I the head of the home? And, you know, it's actually sweet that at this point, Mary Lee's like, yeah. And then we've, you know, we've established, you know, the ground rules. It doesn't mean the fight's over. Right? But at least I feel so much more secure. (laughs) Don't worry. I am the head of my home. But, I mean, do you understand the vulnerability of that question? Can I please have some space to work with here? Sanctification is a long and it's a painful process. But God has chosen and saved us to holiness. 
which is always most visible in its absence or presence in the full intimacy of marriage. I'm going to read that again. Sanctification is a long and painful process, but God has chosen and saved us to holiness, which is always most visible in its absence or presence in the full intimacy of marriage. Early in marriage, I discovered this verse, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And I, I, I could not believe in my sin and stupidity and lust that God had given me Mary Lee. I mean, I was so thankful when I first saw that verse because I realized that God had decided to bless me with a prudent wife. How well our creator knows us and how kind he is to give us what we don't deserve. And not just a wife, but children too. For Mary Lee and me, five of them now, uh, depending on how you count it, 30 grandchildren. And a couple of times each year, we we get together as an entire family. and, And yeah, you know, we have arguments. But I think, I hope, that we kind of, sort of, I don't know, Heather, Ben, I don't know. Do we enjoy it? (laughs) You guys had a wonderful time at Christmas this year. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I just get such a kick out of hearing about your marriages and families, you know. I've gotten to the point where I actually just laugh and laugh and laugh when I hear about it now because I just think, you know, it's their turn. Ha ha ha! You know? I regularly say to Taylor as he tries to figure out how to run a bell tire joint, you know, Taylor, you should have been a pastor. It would have been so much easier. Listen, life is hard, but it's such a blessing. You can't do it on your own, but if you commit your way and trust in him, he will bring it to pass. If you give yourselves to his church and her love, care, and discipline, you will reap untold benefits. And if you trust God with your sinful marriage, you will have the joy of seeing it the beauty and glory that God has designed to be a glimpse of the love and joy we look forward to seeing one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride. This is our hope, and we trust it will be yours as well. By faith, look for your heavenly Father to bring it to pass. Now, I'm going to have Mary Lee tell a couple stories, and then we'll bring it to an end. Uh, So bumper stickers, that whole thing... We drank the Kool-Aid. Peter, Dr. Spock, fighting, miserable. Limo service, underwear. Okay, then. (laughs) Um, When we were um, just married... 
This was in the mid-70s. There were bumper stickers that said question authority and don't trust anyone over 35. It was an actual bumper sticker. Um, any and all authority was seen as bad in that time period in our culture, and the church was just going right along with that. Christian feminism and egalitarianism had taken over, and the institution of the church was seen as pointless and not relevant. And we drank that Kool-Aid. In God's providence, um, Tim read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, which he has mentioned lots of times. Um, so the point was in that book that he was uh, writing it from prison and he had been part of an underground church because the Nazis were arresting um, people who were meeting in churches. And so what Bonhoeffer was writing in Life Together was, if you have the opportunity to be in church, be in church. And don't you know, be jumping around trying to find the perfect church. Don't sit in judgment of your church. Join a church, jump in, and you know, participate. So Tim read that. He read it to me. Uh, we were really just early married, and that was a real changing point for us because we joined a church, which was pretty um, unexpected even to ourselves. Um, we led the youth group and started a small group in our apartment. But to get a fuller picture of who we were, um, I think you know probably you all saw the picture that was sent out in the email about the conference um, taken in that period of time. Tim had a pierced ear. I had a pierced nose. Um, this was way before that was the norm. Okay. Anybody had it. What? Nobody. Nobody. Right. Nobody. Nobody. So uh, we had a home birth, we lived in government housing, we went to the University of Wisconsin, which is very liberal. Um, we did anything and everything which was countercultural, which actually, in fact, was totally along with what everybody else was doing in the culture. We just thought we were so cool and countercultural. Um, so when I say we jumped into church life and even led the youth group, it was pretty amazing, um, both to us um, and that they even let us do it. Um, we also, during the uh, days, we, uh, for work, we cleaned and painted houses together and um, fought. Did I mention fighting? Uh, when we were painting, we generally tried to be in different parts of the house because if we were in the same room, we were fighting. And uh, Tim was the boss. Uh, he was older than me. He was a man. He had previous experience with painting. So on every level, it made sense. He was the boss. But I didn't want to have a boss. I didn't want to be told how to do things. And when he told me that it was imperative that we used drop cloths when we painted, it was like, oh, for goodness sakes. you know, Because you keep moving as you're painting. And I didn't want to have to keep stopping and moving the drop cloth. So every time he would come into the room where I was painting, you know, for sure, I would have moved beyond the drop cloth. And then we had to fight about it. Okay? So. Talk about the carpet. Oh, yeah. It was over wall-to-wall, -wall, light beige wool carpet. So he really did not want me to spill. But what was the big deal I wasn't going to spill? Okay? <laughs> Seriously. So. Yeah, I mean, you sort of get the picture. Um, 
So um, because we were so countercultural and we were, you know, non-traditional, we didn't want to do anything that smelled of tradition or anything that our parents had done, that meant that we went into our marriage with this, you know, this big egalitarian thing, which really meant that we fought about everything. There was nothing that was just sort of a given in cultural uh, or spiritual, any kind of norm of expectations or anything. We were just going to do it on our own, which meant we got to fight about everything. So we got to fight about who was going to do the you know, things in the house, the chores. Um, I mean, we literally, we could fight about who set the pace for when we took a walk together. Okay. Fought about everything. Um, so uh, that's not a real helpful, um, positive way to start a marriage, um, because there does have to be uh, leadership. There is man and wife, husband and helpmate, and it, we just we weren't seeing it and accepting it. But one day, my brother, who had had a very life-changing experience um, in his own life, we were good friends with them, and he said to Tim. Um, God wants you to lead your wife. And so Tim took that to heart and started um, accepting the biblical um, mandates about leadership and authority in the home. And I was not such an eager follower um, at that point. It took me a long time to accept those truths um, and then even a longer time to embrace them. And... So I just want to encourage you that wherever you are now in your life and marriage, God can and will change you and your marriage. Um, after we had Heather, we read Dare to Discipline by James Dobson. And I'm sure my dad must have sent it to us because um, Tyndale House published it and it had been turned down by several other publishers. So anyway, so my dad had published Dare to Discipline. We were having kids, sent us a copy. What well, Dr. Spock, I don't know if you guys have heard of Dr. Spock. Okay, big deal. Um, he wrote... Um, a book on baby and child care was actually published in the 40s, so now we're in the 70s, so there's already been 30 years of people reading this book and accepting his um, teaching that corporal punishment was bad and much more permissive um, parenting was good. Well, Dobson came like a fresh of breath air to us. Fresh of breath air? What did I say? <laughs> A breath of fresh air. A breath of fresh air to us because we were already seeing all these, you know, children who were not disciplined. And so for him to encourage you to discipline, you know, was helpful. And when, you know, I just remember one of the quotes was something like, when your child disobeys you, he is asking to be punished. Don't disappoint him. <laughs> so, um, so we read the book and disciplined our kids. But as we say in our family, not so fast, Abernathy, because we were still a little out there in our own um, behavior and lifestyle. And um, we had accepted the world's way of talking, and we pretty freely threw around the F word in our daily conversation. So one day when we had friends over for breakfast, our two-year-old Heather asked someone to pass the effing pancakes. <laughs> So, uh, 
<laughs> now, our friends didn't care because they talked the same way. But it suddenly occurred to us that my parents were going to come visit that weekend. <laughs> and it was really time to clean up our act. So, <laughs> Whew, we did. Um, okay, so this is changing the direction a little bit, but there's something that we have found very helpful that we like to share with couples, and we call it, there is more, one, more than one way to skin a cat. And we learned a couple of things from Tim's parents, um, and I just don't even remember the details of when they chose to share this with us or what, but Tim's dad used to travel a lot, um, speaking at conferences, and they realized that every time he was going to take a trip, um, they were fighting, and this was back in the 60s when all businessmen wore white shirts, okay? You needed a clean white shirt uh, for every day. And so when he was going to travel, he needed to have uh, white shirts to take with him. Well, he didn't just um, need clean shirts. He liked his starched. Oh, boy. And so we are talking about her, Tim's mom, doing a lot of laundry and washing and ironing. That's the thing that goes like this, you know, <laughs> on a real rickety base. <laughs> That's ironing. So she did that a lot. Anyway, so he would be ready to take a trip, needed his clothes ready, and she did not have enough shirts ready. So they would be having a fight about that. Well, finally, um, he solved the problem in a different way other than just continuing to harass her um, about not having the shirts ready. He started dropping off his shirts at the Chinese laundry. Okay, So even though they really lived on a tight budget, imagine the relief to her to stop having this pressure to always have these shirts ready, and the you know, relief for him to know his shirts were ready. He had just picked them up at the dry cleaners, you know? So there is more than one way to skin a cat. There was another problem, though, was they realized that they were still fighting when they went on, when he was leaving on trips, and now it's because she had lost her keys, okay? She was going to take him to the airport. She either couldn't find her purse, and Tim referred to this earlier. I mean, this was just a constant in her life. She had lost something, and she wasn't ready to go. So he's ready to go. You know, he needs to get to the airport. Flight is going to be there. Um, she's not ready. So by the time they got in the car for her to take him to the airport, they were no longer talking. Miserable trip. So again, he solved the problem by starting to take a limo service to the airport. There is more than one way to skin a cat, okay? I don't know why anybody would ever want to skin a cat, but... <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> there are more than Jason. one way to... Uh, yeah, Jason might... <laughs> <laughs> Jason, have you ever skinned a cat? <laughs> what did he say? No, he said no. Um, so anyway, I just want to encourage you to think through some of the issues that you're having. If there's just a big conflict that you have over and over, see if there isn't some other way to solve it than to just keep arguing about it. One of the things that I thought of is if your husband is tired of running out of clean underwear and thinks it is so obvious that all you need to do is the laundry more often, maybe you should just buy him some more underwear. Okay? So just think creatively about some of these constant arguments that we have. Thank you, sweetie. I do like my wife and I love her. 
Now it's time to end. Um, the other day, I don't know why, but for some reason, I have no idea why, but I started reading this. And I, you know how I told you men, get your wives and read to them. Read to them. You know, grow in the same way. So I got this out and I read this to Mary Lee. And within a few minutes, we were both laughing so hard that tears were coming out of our eyes. Now, it won't work with you, but I'm going to read you what I was reading to Mary Lee. We say then that the female holds up with two strong arms these two pillars of civilization. You got the picture, okay? It is a man writing. We say also that she could do neither but for her position. Her curious position of private omnipotence. Universality on a small scale. The first element is thrift, not the destructive thrift of the miser, but the creative thrift of the peasant. So he's saying women hold up these two pillars. Thrift is one of them, okay, in her sphere. And the second element is dignity, which is but the expression of sacred personality and privacy. Now, I know the question that will be abruptly and automatically asked by all that know the dull tricks and turns of the modern sexual quarrel. The advanced person will at once begin to argue about whether these instincts are inherent and inevitable in woman or whether they're merely prejudices produced by her history and education, thrift and dignity. Now, I do not propose to discuss whether woman could now be educated out of her habits touching thrift and dignity. And that for two excellent reasons. First, it's a question that can't conceivably ever, ever find an answer. That is why modern people are so fond of this question. From the nature of the case, it is obviously impossible to decide whether any of the peculiarities of civilized man have been strictly necessary to his civilization. Now, you have to sort of channel uh, other books he's written to sort of get what he's doing here. He's lampooning our love to discuss what could have been in another world, all right? And so um, if you want to read a hilarious book, read The Everlasting Man, where he lampoons all of academia. I mean, it is, it is hilarious. And so he's channeling. Yeah, this is G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Heather. It is not self-evident, for instance, so in other words, he's now channeling how scholars like to discuss what might have been. He says it's not self-evident, for instance, that even the ha habit of standing upright was the only path of human progress. There might have been a quadrupedal civilization in which a city gentleman put on four boots to go to the city every morning. There might have been a reptilian civilization in which he rolled up to the office on his stomach. It is impossible to say that intelligence might not have developed in such creatures. All we can say is that man, as he walks, he walks upright. 
and that woman is something almost more upright than uprightness. Come on, guys, you better stop, start laughing. The second point is this, that upon the whole, we rather prefer women, nay, even men, to walk upright. So we don't waste much of our noble lives in inventing any other way for them to walk. In short, my second reason for not speculating upon whether woman might get rid of these peculiarities is that I don't want her to get rid of them. Nor does she. I will not exhaust my intelligence by inventing ways in which mankind, mankind might unlearn the violin or forget how to ride horses. And the art of domesticity seems to me as special and as valuable as all the ancient arts of our race. Nor do I propose to enter at all into these formless and floundering speculations about how woman was or is regarded in the primitive times that we can't remember or in the savage countries which we can't understand. Even if these people segregated their women for lower barbaric reasons, it would not make our reasons barbaric. And I'm haunted with a tenacious suspicion that these people's feelings were really, under other forms, very much the same as ours. Some impatient trader, some superficial missionary, walks across an island and sees the squat digging in the fields while the man is playing a flute. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. And immediately, he says that the man is a mere lord of creation and the woman a mere serf. He does not remember that he might see the same thing in half the back gardens in Brixton. <laughs> Merely because women are at once more conscientious and more impatient. While men are at once more quiescent, quiet, and more greedy for pleasure. It may often be in Hawaii simply as it is in Hoxton. That is, the woman does not work because the man tells her to work and she obeys. On the contrary, the woman works because she has told the man to work and he hasn't obeyed. I mean, at this point, Mary and I had tears coming out of our eyes. He just, he just like pokes every bit of hot air in us. You know, we look down on our ancestors. We look down on savages. We, we think we're so much. And he's just like, you stupid idiot. But he says it so much better than that. Okay. I do not affirm that this is the whole truth, but I do affirm that we have too little comprehension of the souls of savages to know how far it is untrue. It is the same with the relations of our hasty and surface science with the problem of sexual dignity and modesty. Professors find all over the world fragmentary ceremonies in which the bride affects some sort of reluctance hides from her husband, runs away from him. The professor then pompously proclaims that this is survival of marriage by capture. 
I wonder he never says that the veil thrown over the bride is really a net. I gravely doubt whether women ever were married by capture. I think they pretended to be as they do still. (laughs) Come on, guys. It is equally obvious that these two necessary sanctities of thrift and dignity are bound to come into collision with the wordiness, the wastefulness, and the perpetual pleasure-seeking of masculine companionship. Wise women allow for the thing. Foolish women try to crush it. But all women try to counteract it. And they do well. In many a home all around us at this moment, we know that the nursery rhyme is reversed. The queen is in the counting house counting out the money. The king is in the parlor eating bread and honey. (laughs) But it must be strictly understood that the king has captured the honey in some heroic war. (laughs) The quarrel can be found in moldering Gothic carvings and in crabbed Greek manuscripts in every age, in every land, in every tribe and village, has been waged the great sexual war between the private house and the public house. So the public house is the bar. Or parliament. They're the same thing. Okay. I have seen a collection of medieval English poems divided into sections such as religious carols, drinking songs, and so on. And the section headed poems of domestic life consisted entirely, literally entirely, of the complaints of husbands who were bullied by their wives. Though the English was archaic, the words were in many cases precisely the same as those which I have heard in the streets and public houses of Battersea protests on behalf of an extension of time and talk, protests against the nervous impatience and devouring utilitarianism of the female. Oh, come on, guys. This is woman devouring utilitarianism. Men, are you whooped or can you raise your hand? She's a devouring utilitarian. Is it useful? Is it efficient? Is it necessary? All right. Such, I say, is the quarrel. It can never be but a quarrel. But the aim of all morals in all societies is to keep it a lover's quarrel. Have you ever thought to go through all the marriages of Scripture? Is your marriage better than all the marriages of Scripture? You know why I'm saying that. You name me a good marriage in Scripture. Try hard. Well, there's one or two. But you realize that Isaac and Rebecca, the Jews, have always considered that to be the best marriage that's ever existed. Isaac and Rebecca. You remember that story, right? Listen, marriage is hard. It's going to be a quarrel. 
Let's keep it a lover's quarrel. Okay? Love your husband. Yeah, he blathers and blathers and blathers and blathers and blathers and never gets nothing done with all his blathering. Isn't that a perfect description of Congress? And so I prefer to just go to the bar and blather, you know? And I hope women stay out because they wouldn't approve, right? Marriage is hard. You're not crazy. You're a man. You're not crazy. You're a woman. A woman will never be a man, and a man will never be a woman. But man, is sex good. It's so sweet that you make love, and somehow children come out of it, And then you get better, and God does. The final thing I want to say is this. You remember that when Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends? Do you remember how it ends? Don't worry. (laughs) Do you remember how it ends? Yeah, it does end that way, but the last, well, yeah, that's the end, but right, right before it, what does he say? He says that if you don't forgive your brother his sins, remember what he says? He says, your heavenly father will not forgive your sins. And I want you to leave remembering that. You all have, as Mary Lee and I do, many, many sins of each other to forgive. You just do. And you know, the thing that inspires pastors and elders and older women of the church, (laughs) or I should say maybe the highest expectation we have is actually not holiness, but forgiveness. Okay? That's the gold standard. Until you are glorified, the gold standard in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ, between children at home, between husbands and wives, is forgiveness. And so if you're sitting there during these talks and there's a grudge you're nursing against your husband or against your wife, get over it. Life is short. Forgive as you have been forgiven. It just makes no sense for us to go before God acknowledging our sin and then for us to be punitive and bitter and remembering about our husband's sin. You say, well, you don't know what my husband has done. I say, oh, yes, I do. Oh, you say, no, you don't. If you knew, you would understand. I say, no, 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 I do know and I do understand. You're a shrew. You say, no, my husband hurt me. I say, (laughs) you know, grow up. Can you imagine all the sins in Scripture that have been committed between husbands and wives? And what if they decided that they would be the opposite with their husband and wife that they were with God? 
What if God treated us the way we treat each other in our marriages? And so love, forgive, have faith. There are no secrets, or the only secrets are faith and forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this place, for the people that have done our food, our sound, the cleaning. We pray your blessing on them. Our Father, we thank you for our wives that they have put up with us. Please make us more loving. Please make us humble. Our Father, we thank you for our husbands, and we pray that you will help us to honor them and to respect them despite their stupidities and sins. Our Father, we pray that you will produce in us the godliness that is necessary for our children to spread their wings and fly in health. And now we pray as we go home that you will give us cheerfulness, that we will, both of us together, give black soil to our children that they may grow up and be nurtured by our love, husband and wife, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.